Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Office Hours Career Paths for PhDs, an interview series where we talk all things post-PhD. We talk about career paths. We talk about our journeys. And I'm excited to share our guest today, Dr. Regina Fuller. She is a research and evaluation consultant, and she earned her PhD in educational policy studies from University of Wisconsin-Madison. We are going to now bring her to the stage. Dr. Fuller. Hi. Thanks, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you so much for joining. So I have to always kind of give the audience just a bit of background about how we connected. I think we found each other on LinkedIn. As I feel like I find everybody on LinkedIn. And we had a call which led to more calls and more emails. So, of course, it was only right for you to join us on Office Hours and before we jump into all the career paths and the journey, just kind of tell me um, a bit about yourself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So, yep, Regina Fuller. I'm from, originally from South Carolina um, in Wisconsin at the moment, and I just finished my PhD in November. I guess it's not just anymore, but it still feels very fresh. Um, I do international education work. Um Straight out of undergrad, I went to grad school in Ghana, did my master's there. And so I think that kind of got me started on doing this international work. And so also lived in D.C. Um, yeah, and I'll leave it at that. No, that. So what prompted you to do the, the master's work in Ghana? That is a good question. Someone just asked me that yesterday. So in undergrad, I was in Ghana for like a month on this longer research trip that I had. So uh, I went to Wofford College, it's a super tiny liberal arts college in South Carolina. And each year um, they pay for one student to travel around the world during their senior year. And I thought I would never get it. And so lo and behold, I got it. So during my senior year of undergrad, um, I was traveling around Latin America, Africa and Asia, researching the African diaspora. And I went to 12 countries total from August until May. I couldn't step foot in the U.S. I think that's where the budding anthropologist was born. And I was in Ghana for three weeks. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I love it here. How do I get back? Wow. So when I returned to the U.S., I had to do a fifth senior year to finish credits and everything. And um, the dean of the college at the time was like, you should apply for a Rotary scholarship. And I work for Rotary now. So it's a very interesting turn of events. But. Rotary has a lot of scholarships for graduate study. And he said, if you apply for this scholarship um, to go to Africa, you'll most likely get it because most people want to go do their master's in London or in Europe. And so that's kind of how I, I was like, I want to go to Ghana. I need money to get there. And <laughs> Rotary had the money. So I was like, I guess I'm going to grad school in Ghana. So that's what was that experience like? It was, it was amazing. I think what you know when you're in something it doesn't feel amazing i remember mm -hmm. this was like 2011 2012 i had some friends who were getting their masters at yale and at these really amazing masters degree programs in the us and i was like oh my goodness i'm at an african university with the resource constraints that you can imagine an african university has mm -hmm. um but i learned so much and i think it was the first time in my life that as an american i was a minority and so mm -hmm. to being a classroom um not just with Black folks, but with African folks and really trying to think about the world and see the world from a Global South perspective, I could have never gotten that here. That was the good side. The downside, Ghana had a lot of power issues at the time. So some days we wouldn't have power for like six or eight hours of the day. 
there were some water issues. So sometimes I had to carry water up the stairs in my dorm to, to use it to cook and to bathe. So that part wasn't fun. But I think overall, being in 90, I, I'm from the South, being warm all year, I couldn't really complain, right? <laughs> I know. And for whatever reason, I've always done my graduate work in very cold places. So right. I should have thought about the temperature because I was miserable in the Midwest. I was miserable in the deep. Right? It was so cold. <laughs> so now tell me what prompted you to pursue your PhD? Yeah, I think I did it out of a place of I need money. <laughs> um, so I had gone to grad school in Ghana and came back to America. And I think that's when reality set in because mm-hmm. a lot of the places I was applying for a job didn't recognize my master's degree from Africa. So I was still being offered pay in roles as someone with a bachelor's degree. And so that was a little frustrating. So I found myself working in DC. That was my big dream. I was like, I want to work in education policy in DC for this really big nonprofit. And I was working on a project where I think it was the State Department funded it, but we were covering English language programs around the world. Mm-hmm. And my day-to-day was really boring. I was on my budget stuff and all of this program admin. And some colleagues who were, weren't on my same team, they were on the research and evaluation team, they were doing really cool work and they had PhDs. And so I was like, oh, clearly, you know, they were like, oh, you know, DC, you can stay and you can work your way up or you can, you know, go get a doctoral degree and then you can come back in and do more of the technical policy work. And so they were kind of really my inspiration to really apply for grad school. Okay. Now, first day in your doctoral program at Wisconsin, what was that like? What did you do, Regina? I think that was what was going through my head. So again, Washington, D.C. to Madison, Wisconsin. Madison is, I don't know, maybe 200,000 people. It's super white. It's the whitest place I've ever lived in my entire life. It's about, the city is like 80% white. So that was so hard coming from a place as diverse as D.C. Growing up in South Carolina, I'm used to being in places where even if I don't see people of color like on campus, like they're around town and here it is like, nope, they're not on campus and they're not in the city either. Um, Mm -hmm. I was like, what did you do? Did you make the right decision? You could have gone to the University of Maryland. It stayed in D.C. Why did you come out here? And so I think it was a lot of really questioning if grad school was the next, you know. And then, of course, going from making a, a not so great salary to like non-existent. I think when I started grad school, we were paid $15,000 a year. And I think that was the hardest of like, how am I supposed to live as an adult who's had a life and career on $15,000 a year? How did you decide between Maryland and Wisconsin? Because that's a big, there are big differences there when it comes to geography and other factors. So I think it came down for me. So they both had equally horrible packages. I think Maryland, they had given me two years and then Wisconsin similarly had given me my first year I was fellowship and then my first year as a dissertator. And in between, I was like, oh, TA, we'll figure it out. I remember meeting, meeting with a grad student in the Maryland program and she was still working full time. And she's like, I can't tell the program it's secret because they don't want me to work full time. But she's like, it's DC. I can't live off of $17,000 a year. And I really just wanted to be a scholar. I didn't want to have to have three jobs and be hustling and do the PhD at the same time. And it just seemed that $15,000 though was very little. Like I could barely survive in Wisconsin. I wouldn't have to still work. And so um, I think that and just the department's, Wisconsin was a bit higher ranked. And so at the time, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to be a professor or to do non-academic route. And I said, 
I thought it would be better to have options. So if I decided to be a professor, being in a higher ranked PhD program, you know, would land me a better professor job. But also if I didn't want to be, I would be okay. And at what point did you decide on your career path? Also a difficult question. I think I'm still deciding. Um, I think probably this past summer. So I, and I don't advise for anyone to do this, but I think during grad school, I couldn't decide. I was really torn between if I wanted to be a faculty member or if I wanted to do non-academic work. So I think up until the last minute, I was applying for both. So my last year of writing I applied for four postdocs and like three non-academic jobs because I was like, I got to have a job. So wherever I end up, I'm going to, I need to be employed. And so I think um, this past summer in August, I, so I applied for four postdocs. I uh, interviewed for two, was only, was offered one. And it was an amazing postdoc for someone in the social sciences. It was at another major university here in the Midwest, non-teaching. It was just doing research. Um, but I remember looking at that offer and talking to my therapist and thinking, I'm supposed to want this. I should be happy. I've won the gold mine. I got a two-year postdoc. Um, it's well-funded. I get to do my research. And it just didn't make me happy. I was like, the thought of being on the job market again when the postdoc ended, the thought of moving to yet another white town in the Midwest to a university town just really didn't excite me. And I think that's when I was like, it's time for me to exit stage left. Now, you also started to do consulting work while you were in grad school. Tell us more about that. Right. So the consulting work, I think I sort of fell into it. It wasn't intentional. Um, my first year, Wisconsin, they have this, I call it like a lab for uh, an evaluation clinic where grad students get to do real-time evaluation projects with um, a research center that sits within the School of Education. So I was working on these projects. And of course, because we were grad students, we were paid like a thousand dollar stipend. But that was fine. I was like, it, it 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 turned on the bell of like, oh, there's someone willing to pay me for my work. And I do pretty much high quality work, right? Like even if it's, you know, a report for a nonprofit, they're still very thankful and grateful. And so I think that started me to see that like these research skills that we take for granted, um, whether it's qualitative, quant, mixed methods. There's a whole wide world out there who wants people like us to do work for them. And so um, I think I took my first gig with Save the Children. Uh, my department actually had a partnership with Save the Children, which is a okay. big international uh, non-governmental organization. And um, they wanted education PhD students to do work with them over the summer. So I did some work with them in Rwanda, did an evaluation of, I think, four early childhood education programs. I think I interviewed like 200 people within the six week time, which when I say it out loud now, sounds absolutely ridiculous. And it yeah. was. Um, and again, in doing that, they pay for, because it was a fellowship program, they paid for my flight and my housing. And because, you know, I'm a student, I didn't get paid for my labor. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, I think, three reports from that. And I was like, wow, I've saved these people a lot of money from, a, from, from hiring an evaluator because I'm a grad student. So clearly I can, someone will pay me to do this, you know? So I think you keep having those experiences where I realized that somebody was going to pay me to do this kind of work. And so um, after that Save the Children job, I was like, when I become a dissertator and I'm done with coursework, I'm just going to try this consulting thing for real, right? Like, I'm just going to just apply to some gigs and see if I can get some. And I think that's where it started. 
Now, how did you position yourself for those opportunities? So you said that you apply, like, tell me what website, what information did they require? I want our audience to see a pathway, the possibilities of what they can do when they look for this type of work. Yeah. So I think it depends on like what, like, I guess, niche or work that you do. So because I knew, so I'm in an, I was in educational policy studies with a concentration in international education. So there's like a whole sector the international development, global development sector around international ed. And so for me, during my coursework, I was trying to find all of those sites. So the main sites for international work, for example, DevEx, D-E-V-E-X, they're always posting consultancies there. Um, my first consulting job came from Global Jobs. I think it's like globaljobs.com and they just posted. And so in that first gig, I didn't know anyone there. They wanted a qualitative research um, consultant someone who had experience in Africa, which I did. Um, and I think there was an experience with young people. So I was like, let me just apply for this thing. And so that was the first one. The second job I had was during my field work. I was living in Ghana. Uh, my dissertation research is on sex education in Ghana. So I was in Ghana and a friend was like, the World Bank is looking for a consultant. And oh. I was like, okay. It was a, pub, a purely public health project. And I, I dibble and dabble in public health because I do sex education work. I remember she sent me the TOR, the terms of reference. And I was like, why did you just send this to me? Like they want like someone with a really strong public health background that I do not have who could do economic analysis of data that I cannot do. Um, But she's like, apply. So I applied, did the interview. And I was like, wow, this went really horribly because there was some stuff that I'm like, I'm not going to lie. Like I can't do like high level statistical modeling. That's, That's just not something I can do. And then I got it and I was like, oh, <laughs> and I think in working on the project, what I think the skills that they wanted was someone who knew the context that I was in. So Ghana, mm-hmm. can you, can you do work in Ghana? Do you know how to navigate with ministries and government, which I was doing in my own dissertation work um, and the other, the stats stuff, they had someone else on the team to do that. So I think it showed me that it, even for me, who I was like, I know this sector very well that sectors matter, but honestly, people are looking for skills at the end of the day. Like, what are your skills? And like, you can apply those in different sectors. Now, what what application materials did you need in order to show them that you were able to do this work with your portfolio? Kind of tell me what you had to submit for these opportunities. Right. Yeah. So most of them is usually um, a resume, a cover letter, and they want to see a work sample. So usually I think I've submitted like a past evaluation report I've written when I was first starting out I would submit like maybe a paper one of my really better papers that I've done so maybe like a lit review that maybe was a bit more applied not like one of the more 20 pages but maybe like a shorter Mm -hmm. 10 page lit review I've submitted those um yeah and just like reports that I've written for other clients if you can sometimes those things are confidential and so I can't share those Mm -hmm. um but recently I think something I've learned that I try to tell other PhD students is turn your dissertation into a report, right? Like I have this three pager on my dissertation, which it's cute. It talks about my methods. It talks about the policy findings. So not my big theoretical, but like what would someone who's in the ministry of education in Ghana, what would they want to know? And so I've done that as well because I completely own that. So I can always share that. Whereas if it's a client's work, I can't necessarily always share that with someone else. 
we may have to have you back to kind of give us a workshop on how to do that, because that's one thing that I know for me, my first job, they asked for evidence or portfolio. Of right. Work. I was like, All I have is my defense debt, girl. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, I sent it and it, it worked out. But I knew that I was taking a risk because I didn't have anything else to show. Right. So it's great that you found a way to take your PhD and turn into something that can show, you know, because who wants to send their full, or their dissertation across? And who That's wants crazy. to read that? And who's going to read that? I don't even want to read mine. So. I don't want to read mine. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So once you get to the point where you have graduated, tell me what were your next steps when it came to looking for a job? Right. So I actually started my job three months before my, I defended, which I'm not sure I necessarily advise people to do. Okay. Uh, but it, it is, it is what it was. Um, mm. it, it got to a point where, you know, you're looking for jobs and the perfect job comes up and you're just like, I don't want to say perfect job, but a, a job you really like comes up mm. and you're like, I could wait until I'm actually defended or I can just go ahead and apply. And so, um, I was planning to defend in August, but I eventually defended in November. Um, so, Beginning of May, every week, one application had to be out of the door. And so I would say that the way I started was not the best way. So I was like, oh, I do education work. So I was applying to any education job, which I think is a really bad idea. I think people should not niche down, but really find like um, within a sector, what's the one role that you want? And so I, I knew I wanted to work in philanthropy. So I was applying I didn't know. Sorry. I knew I wanted to work in philanthropy. I also knew I wanted to work for a research firm. So I was applying for education jobs, like program officer roles at, at foundations okay. and also like research firms like um, American Institute for Research. Uh, I'm trying to think of other ones that are similar like that. Uh, NORC. Uh, what does NORC stand for? It's at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so those are kind of two very different types of roles and resumes and cover letters. And so I think I was doing double the work because one, a program officer role is more of, can you um, manage a grant portfolio? Whereas a researcher officer roles are like, can you do research? Can you write? Can you get grants and funding? And so I was just kind of applying for everything because I was like, I need a job. I need a job. Mm-hmm. And after I was getting all of these interviews, Jasmine, I was so frustrated, but not getting any offers. And I was like, clearly something is wrong because I can get an interview. I can write a cover letter, but why can't I get an offer? People should love me. They should want me, right? <laughs> I'm amazing. <laughs> right. And so I think I was just reading some articles and like, why are you aren't getting offers? And I realized that I was hiding myself, I think, and hiding like the unique values I bring. And so I do international education work. Yes, I can do some domestic work, but that's just not where my experience is and where my passion is. And so I think when I was applying for some of those roles that were focused only on U.S. education, for example, I was kind of underqualified and they were they were confused. They're like, you do work in Africa and Latin America. <laughs> You don't do work around U.S. public education. And so I was trying to, I guess, hide some of the things that make me so unique, right? They're like, oh, you did your master's degree in Ghana. That's great. But like, that may not be relevant for this particular role. And so I think I was kind of putting my, trying to fit myself. I was a triangle trying to fit into like a circle hole instead Mm -hmm. of trying to find those triangle roles. Yeah. Okay. Now, about how long were you on the job market before you landed. So you mentioned that you got the job three months before you defended. How long right. did it take you to land that job? Yeah, so May, June, July, August, four months. So started in May, 
Um, and then landed this role in August. I also had two offers at the same time, which has never happened to me before in life. Um, and you know, you read on these like career blogs of like, yeah, you have multiple offers. I'm like, y'all, I'm just trying to get one, <laughs> right? Like two job offers. And so I think that when I did the switch of trying to apply for everything in the education realm versus what are the roles that require me to have language experience that want someone who has international experience, that's when I started to see, like, I think a a change in the tide and the wave. Okay. And then tell me, now that you are working full-time in research and evaluation, and you're also doing consulting in this space, what exactly is research and evaluation for those who may not know? Yeah. Ooh, that's a hard one. (laughs) So I would say research and evaluation for in the nonprofit space usually is um, someone has an, a program, and I'm going to say some education program, um, and they want to know, is it working? So let's say we're doing a teacher training program in Guatemala because we teachers, the language levels are really low, right? Reading levels are low. So they usually either hire an outside firm to come in and tell them, okay, so we did this really great teacher training program, teacher professional development in Guatemala. Is it working? Are students learning more now? Do the teachers like it? How is the program implementation? So the researcher and or the evaluator, they come in, they do usually interviews, focus group discussions, probably some stats work too, to answer the question of, is this intervention working and under what conditions? And so that's usually in the space that I work in. Um, again, in the education space, I was on this really cool project last year. In my, so I work full time and I also still consult. Mm-hmm. And it was evaluating an, uh, a gender education project in Indonesia. And so they were trying to teach teenagers, basically adolescent girls and boys, like especially boys. So like, how do we respect young girls and, you know, menstruation? That's the time when menstruation happens. How can we reduce some of the taboos that are happening around menstruation? So it was a really cool project. I didn't do the interviews, um, but I helped to analyze them and to put them together uh, for the program. What would you say are some major differences between your academic research and then research for like industry research and evaluation? Right. I think the one of the main things I think is language. Like, so really making sure that the language is very like simple and easy, easy to digest. So in my current role, I work for Rotary International which we're a membership-based organization. So Rotary members are in all walks of life, right? They're not technical experts. So while I have all this amazing and great knowledge about education, if I write a memo as if I'm writing to other education experts or other PhDs, there's going to be a lot that's lost. So really making sure that information is a lot more digestible and I would say actionable. So not just, Mm -hmm. this is what I found. Great. So the Guatemala teacher training program didn't work. Okay then what's the recommendation or how can we improve it? So I think there's always that like policy and practice implication that we don't necessarily do a good job of in the academy of like, oh, we, we, we have all these great findings and we theorize, but not necessarily saying, okay, like, well, how can we make that change? That's one thing I found with commercial research is less about justifying how you did it Right. And more about, OK, so what does it mean? Like, what do mm-hmm. we do next? And I would encourage everyone, even when it comes to your dissertation, being able to if you're about to defend, you know, of course, talk to your methods and all of that, because that's important. But being able to say, what does it mean? 
that helps to just kind of really show that you understand and you're thinking about the future directions of your research and that you truly understand the impact of your work. But even for people who are wanting, wanting to transition into industry work, most times I've even had situations where we put together a report and the direction we get is they're only going to read one slide. That's it. I'm like, what? All this work. <laughs> All this work for one slide. And so having to tighten it where you don't have 12 point font and 15 paragraphs <laughs> on one slide, but being able to write in a way that you can make it actionable, but it's still brief and people can get the high the high level insights. That's, I think, the most challenging thing. But it's also kind of fun because it forces your brain to think in a different way and it kind of cuts through all the the extra layers of language and words that we would add on top of it just to get to this is what we're trying to say. This is how you do it, and this is how you move forward. Right. That's it. I recently for work, um, I had to write a landscape, uh, like a lit review, but a landscape scan of educational technology, ed, the ed tech space in a country in Latin America. Mm. And it was so funny when I was doing it, I was like, oh, Regina, take off your academic brain. This is not an academic exercise, right? Like, they just want to know what's been going on in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And it was it was honestly a bit freeing because I was like, I don't need to, like, it doesn't need to be so expensive. I need to go all deep in the literature. Just give them a two-pager because that's all time. That's all the time that people have to read, right? They only have time to read two pages. Make it so, like, concentrated. So I think that's what, one of the things I do love is that things are so, like, pointed and it's not like tell me about um the history of ed tech and should we be doing it It was like no in this particular context in the last five years let me know what they've been doing now kind of walk me through the process once you are brought on to a project so they say hey regina we want to work with you tell me what happens next yeah so usually um there's usually like a, a terms of reference or some kind of like, not a contract, but something that describes what the job, the the consulting opportunity includes. Okay. And like usually at that work, statement of work, okay. uh, yeah, statement of work, yeah, statement of work, TOR, terms of reference. Mm-hmm. And usually sometimes it's a negotiation. So because I do work full time, um, I'm always, you know, some of some I can't take on every single project. And so sometimes I'm like, can we take, can we tone this down a little bit? Mm-hmm. or I'm willing to do this, or you haven't thought about this. And so I find that um, usually people are flexible, okay. especially when they when they want your expertise. And so I own this particular project that I worked on um, uh, in, in Indonesia. It was a whole quant team, and I was a qualitative expert, which means I had the upper hand, right? So I was mm-hmm. like, nope, we're not gonna, like we're not doing this, we're doing that. And they really listened to me. And I think to me that's at this stage – those are the, the types of projects that I want to be on where my voice is valued. And um, I was on a different project in Ghana where also I was the quant, the qual person that tends to be usually where people hire me as we need a qual person. Um, and there's a quant team and they respected me, but I don't think they took my feedback as much as this current project did. Okay. So once you're on the project, how do you plan out your work. And I don't want to get into your secret sauce here, but I, I want to give our our audience just an idea of how the how their research skill set can contribute to work in this space. Right. 
So I think it depends. So I'll talk about a, um, I think it depends on the project, but I, I tend to, I tend to go back into, I guess my academic brain of like, what would I do in a normal lit review? Like if I'm doing a lit review for my, for my own research and then um, kind of truncating that list. So I was on a project team last year for a foundation and they wanted us to write like a paper on like adolescence and gender during the pandemic. And so, which is a huge topic, right? And so I think part of our work as a team and even me as a researcher was like, I can't research such a broad topic. So how can I refine that? And so whether it's more of like a lit review project or more like a call research project, really trying to define those research questions, right? That's like research one-on-one. What what are we trying to do? And then trying to figure out what are the methods that I can, whether that's lit review, or interviews or lit review and interviews in that particular case, we have to do some key informant interviews, um, mapping that out. What's the process and where do I need to go to find the information? Um, and then doing the work, I think, and also tracking my time. I think that's something I learned early on. I didn't used to track my time, <laughs> but like really tracking my time and being like, Regina, you're getting paid to do a 10 hour lit review. So you're going to do a 10 hour lit review, right? Because I think as academics, we want to like, no, but I got to keep going. It's like, you're getting paid. You have 20 hours of work for this particular part of the project. <laughs> so what can you do within 20 hours and making sure your time, your work plan is in alignment with your contract? That's consulting one-on-one because you don't want to give people your time for free. As yeah. A, yeah. That is an excellent point for everyone that's listening. I want y'all to rewind a bit to listen to that again because it's easy to give your time away when you are freelancing because we do it in academia all the time. Right. You know, it's nothing for us to sit down and write all the words on some paper we're never going to get paid for. And so it's important that you recognize that your time is valuable. And one thing I found also is that the moment you start giving your time away, it takes one either raggedy client or a client that doesn't appreciate your work. You're like, oh no. Yep, never again. Now. Never again. Okay. <laughs> That's what happened to me. My first consulting client, the job that I applied for online, um, they wanted someone to do qualitative data analysis, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a qualitative researcher and I know many of the qual researchers out there, like once we get the project, we can do that in our sleep. And so the first couple of interviews, so I didn't conduct any of the interviews. So it was kind of weird in that they were already conducted by somebody else. So I didn't know the data well, but after the first four, you know, they're repeating and it was an hourly project. And I realized, I'm like, you all did not pay for the three years that I spent in grad school already or all the other projects where I can analyze an interview very quickly. But I was, but that's what I had agreed to. And I was like, okay, right? Like, just because it takes me 30 minutes to analyze an interview right now, doesn't, you're not paying for all the time it took me to learn Max QDA, to use it effectively, you know, years before. And so just learning how to, um, be a bit more smart and wise about our time and that people are paying you for your experience, right? Like you want the experience that I have and it may, it may take me a little bit less time than someone else because I just have more experience. So pay me for that and not necessarily for the 20 minutes it takes me to do it, but it may take somebody else off the street two hours to do it. Right. And it's important. That's one thing. And I've, I've consulted off and on for years, but for whatever reason, when I'm going into a new arena, especially when I switched from comps consulting to research, I was almost afraid to charge people like the full. Right. But I, I realized, I said, girl, check your bank account. Check the bank account. <laughs> yes. And then charge them because you're doing this work because one, you love it, but you're also looking to supplement your income. And it doesn't make any sense to 
pursue this consulting path and then not charge what you're worth. And then you still walk away feeling like you did all of this work and you didn't get a return back that that's really sufficient for you. So charge your worth, charge those yes. people. I wish I had a shirt that says charge those people. Yes. And Jasmine, I blame PhD programs for that. Cause I think when you start consulting or freelancing when you're a PhD program, you're making more than you make as a TA or graduate assistant. So you're like, oh, this is good money. But it's like, no, it's still not. That shouldn't be the standard of like, mm-hmm. you're paid so low that anything that's above that is good. And so I think it's for us as grad, as as recovering academics or recovering PhDs to know that our time is valuable and that just because it's more than what we'll be making as maybe a faculty member or as a graduate assistant doesn't mean that it's enough. Right. And also know they have the budget. When you think and they, they have the budget, budget. they Put have that on a budget. shirt. They have the budget. They have the budget. <laughs> okay, so that means we need a couple shirts because another one is the price is the price. The Meaning price the we're price. not going to cut the price because nope. the price is the price. So there are no negotiations. If you want less work done, um, or if you can't afford the the rate that I'm charging, then we can negotiate uh, you getting less from me. But it's never going to be less yes. from me for the same amount of work. You have to always be willing to take something off the table. Which again, that might be our second workshop that we do. That's consulting two hundred one. Yes, that is because the stories. Oh gosh, the way people will try and get over. Mm-hmm. Um, they will. Yeah. No. Even play. I even think about imposter syndrome and how that factors into all of this when. It's like it's one thing to earn the PhD, you've done all the work, and then still feel as though you don't know enough to be able to start consulting. I had that for a split second. And then once I had one successful project, I was like, oh, I'm in my bag now. Like, that's <laughs> it. Like, I can do this. And so, even just finding that confidence, and I think it does help to also have a group or a community where you're able to, you know, talk to other people that are in that space because we're so scattered that it's hard to find PhDs that are also consulting. So um, if you're able to find that community, I think it's important because I know even our conversations, we're like, girl, okay, like we really get into it and really encourage each other to make sure that we're, you know, staying on top of our A game, but also charging the price. You, Jasmine, I think you just hit the nail on the head. You got to have community, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm the biggest advocate now. I used to be a big advocate of Twitter, and I, I think I still like Twitter. But LinkedIn, what LinkedIn has done for my career, my full-time job, for my consulting gigs is, you know, in building community and talking, right? And, and having conversations like we're having now about money. Yeah. You know how I found out I was undercharging last year? My really good friend, um works for a black woman who I, who I love. It's funny. I introduced them to each other and she has this amazing research and evaluation business that has blown up. Mm-hmm. And we were just having a conversation. She's like, Regina, no, like in our contracts, this, this mentor of mine charges X and this is what I'm charging for my time. And I'm like, wait, what? You're like, and, and I thought, you know, I'm consulting one-on-one. I know this, I'm telling people to consult. And I was like, Oh, I am severely undercharging. And so having these conversations very frankly about money, I think it's something that we have to do, not just as black women, but just as like PhDs, like really telling people like, no, this is what you should be making. Like a, a friend, we were in the fellowship program together. She works um, for a major, like one of the, is it big five accounting? I don't know, but, big four. but not well, big four. Mm-hmm. And when she told me her starting salary of $150,000, I was like straight out of a postdoc. I was like, people get paid that. I was, my mind was blown because again, I'm in the nonprofit world. Yeah. You want, that's like a director level, right? Role. But 
I was just so surprised. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like we need to have more honest conversations about money and what the PhD can get you. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that. I went to a conference, um, it may have been last month, and I met an older Black woman who's been in qual research for 40 years. And we were talking, and she was just saying how she was happy to see, you know, younger people coming in and doing this work. And she got to a point, and she said, look, Jasmine, don't go in there. It was very much so like this grandma, like Mm -hmm. auntie moment. She's just like, your rate needs to be at least this this is what I charge. You need to make sure that you're somewhere close to that. Don't go in there undercharging yourself because you are shortchanging yourself and your ability. I've never had anyone do that for me. I started my first business. Was it 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. And no one has ever sat me down and said, here, this is how it goes. But it's important to now, of course, you get into some conversations where like some industries you can't discuss rate because they have like, you know, price fixing and all right. that. You know, all so that. that is something like not everybody can do that. But she even said, she was like, I'm about to retire anyway. What are they going to do to me? And I was like, okay, ma'am, well, <laughs> <laughs> what else should we charge Because I, I missed one number. But it is important to have those conversations because there are people that are out here that are doing quite well, doing work that's impactful. They're using all of their research skill set and they're able to live, you know, the type of life they want to. Now, everything isn't about money, but money impacts everything that's important. That's, um, and I got that quote from Dr. Darius Daniel. So again, I'll say that because that, that changed my perspective on everything. He said money isn't everything, but it affects everything that's important. So you keep that in mind for our listeners when y'all are trying to figure out what you should charge or you're afraid to send the invoice. Send the invoice. Yes. Make them pay you. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we'll move into our last segment, mentorship moment. So just thinking about, let's say there's a doctoral student who's trying to think through, you know, their next steps. What's a piece of advice that you can give them to help them on their journey? Mm, Okay. I have two. The first one, use your summer's summers or time when you're not in coursework to intern, consult, freelance, all of that above, right? Like this is a time for you to build your experience and to figure out what it is you like and you don't like. You want to do UX, get a Facebook internship or whoever, Google to see if UX is really what you want to do, or maybe you want to be in a nonprofit space. Use that time to experiment because you'll need it. Um, I think the second thing for me was hone in on your unique trajectory, right? So I think I was hiding hiding it a lot. And once I stopped hiding it, I think I was really attracting roles that were in alignment with, with what I want to do. So I, my undergrad degree is in Spanish. I live in Latin America. Y'all know I did my master's in Ghana. So like, I'm like, I need, I want to do work in Latin America and Africa. So I need to find somebody who wants somebody who speaks Spanish, but also wants someone who has experience on the continent. And so once I kind of like, this is my unique value add to the world or to, to roles that really helped me to find that niche. So don't, if you have a non-traditional background, don't hide from it. I think that's what I was doing. Like let it shine because you're bringing something so new and spectacular that no one else can. And employers want that. Like I, I didn't talk about my PhD a lot in my interviews. I mean, they knew I was in, in grad school and now knowing my boss who I love, it's, like that was one of the main selling points. They're like, you have something that no one else in our team has, right? Mm-hmm. Like we love that you have a research and evaluation background because I'm in a more technical role. I'm not on the research and eval team at work. 
And I was like, oh, this was actually a selling point. I thought it was, would be a detracting, but they're like, no, we want someone who has a bit of that because we want to build our monitoring evaluation systems. And so we love that. And so I think you'll be surprised at how the PC is actually an asset in some mm-hmm. industries. I know people are always like, oh, hide it or don't put it on your resume. But I'm like, no, show up in your full self. Like, there's no need to hide. <laughs> well, this has been amazing, Dr. Fuller. I am inspired. I wish I had spent my undergraduate years abroad. <laughs> but I <was laughs> just trying to survive. Just trying to survive. Right? Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to our audience. Make sure that you like, comment, subscribe, and also share this video with a PhD that you love.